Welcome to another episode of Axe the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always is my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. Uh, we are actually on the verge of getting a huge rainstorm tomorrow, so I am my body is telling me all about it. <laughs> We're recording really early, actually. So normally we record on a Friday. It's actually Tuesday. The weekend, or the day, couple days before Thanksgiving, so this podcast, it'll it'll have been several days past this rainstorm by the time this podcast goes up. Oh, well, hopefully I'm nice and dry. <laughs> well, I hope so. That'd be a heck of a pot, that would be a, a heck of a rainstorm if uh, you were still dr- soaking wet or drenched or whatever. Yeah, especially since it's like, well, I'm on the 15th floor, we don't tend to get flooding up here. This is going to be a pretty chill episode, I think. Uh, we actually do have a special guest, though, Nadia. Oh, that's nice to hear. We're going to be joined by Sarah Elsom. She's a staff writer at Dicebreaker, which will soon be the latest addition to the Gamer Network family. And we're going to talk about the state of tabletop games. Oh, that's actually, uh, it's funny how uh, tabletop games are making like this just huge comeback. Uh, I think it's uh, really cool. Yeah, we talk about that a bit in the actual episode. Um I one thing that really stands out to me is definitely the way that tabletop games have totally taken over streaming. Oh, have they? I didn't know that. Yeah, you should go check it out. Uh, there are a couple of channels in particular that are extremely popular. Uh, they're escaping my my mind at this very moment, but basically they stream themselves running uh, actual D and D adventures, right? And Everybody has their own characters and everything, and people are, like, sending in fan art, and they have props, and <laughs> it's it's fun. That actually does sound like a lot of fun. And now that you mentioned it, I think I, I think the Loading Ready Run guys do that. They stream uh, not just D&D, but they also stream, like, Magic and stuff like that, which I know is a card game, but it's kind of the same idea where people like to watch other people play these analog games. It's almost like an improvised Let's Play. Yes. Because... Basically, they're putting together a serialized story that's going episode by episode. And if you miss an earlier one, I mean, you can go back and watch an older stream and catch up on the story. Uh, yeah, that's actually a good point, because what is D&D other than a big kind of ongoing story? I have only played D&D once in my life, and I enjoyed it. But uh, yeah, I don't play it regularly by any means. Yes, as I uh, tell Sarah, my main... Uh, experience with D&D was probably with 4th edition uh, when it was maybe a little more gameplay focused and I, from what I'm able to gather, 5th edition is more role playing focused. Right. Um, I seem to remember 4th edition there was a lot of controversy around that one when it came out. Yeah. Uh, my, my, what I was able to gather, people were mad because people saw it as kind of dumbing down uh, mm. 3.5 and there were a lot of kind of rote decisions when it came to the way that your powers recharged and everything. Right. Uh, see, I can't really comment on that. I just know that when people complain about things being dumbed down, it's usually there's usually kind of an air of gatekeeping there, whether they intend to or not. Uh, it's, people say that all the time about Skyrim. Oh, it's just Oblivion dumbed down, but um, maybe so, but it really got a lot of people into the game because it was, you know, it was a lot more accessible. Accessibility is good, but I, I do think, think so. that developers can go too far in watering down certain mechanics to the point where a lot of the interesting choices get lost. Well, I think uh, it was last episode we were talking about how Skyrim has that big winter uh, Winterhold College uh, quest where everyone just sniped that really dangerous necromancer from like a million feet away and, and said, okay, that's it. We're done. The other thing I found, though, is that people just like to complain <laughs> That's true. People do like to complain. The The internet is for two things. Either praising something ridiculously. Currently, the Mandalorian is the, the hot thing with Baby Yoda and all Baby that. Baby Yoda. Very cute. A show I have not watched yet, which I guess I need to turn in my Star Wars card. I, I guess I'll have to as well because I haven't really watched it yet either. I don't know when or if I intend to. Maybe. Maybe. I, I certainly intend to see the new movie when it comes out, but... I don't know if I want to bother with uh, The Mandalorian, even though uh, the new Admiral Thrawn trilogy is coming next year, which I'm going to have to read. What? A new Thrawn trilogy? Yeah. 2020. What? That's weird. It's by Timothy Zahn, right? Yeah, Timothy Zahn. I don't know about this retconning. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm a little bit. Uh, my husband and I were just talking about that not long ago. I was saying, is Heir to the Empire like canon or not? And he said he doesn't think so, but Admiral Thrawn is canon. I'm it's, not it's ready. Up. I'm not ready for Admiral Thrawn to be hanging out with Bill Weasley from the First Order. <laughs> I'll buy it. I'll take it. Yeah, because uh, one of the Weasleys from Harry Potter is uh, the leader, the the military leader of the First Order in the the new trilogy. That's amazing. I love that. That's the yeah. uh, the most opposite character you can you can conceive of. <laughs> well, I have a free sub- one year subscription to Disney Plus, and I even still I hadn't really intended to watch The Mandalorian because even though I ultimately liked The Last Jedi, I've been a little out on the Star Wars universe in general, just because the tone that Abrams kind of set with it was a little too flights of fancy for me. Like, it didn't feel like there was any internal logic anymore with the actual universe, and I think Starkiller Base really set the tone with that. Where it's yeah. just like, it's a Death Star, but it's like 20 it's times 20 bigger. 20 times bigger. Newer, bigger, badder, but Death Star. Yeah, it started to feel kind of unreal to me. It was not a universe I could really grok anymore, which is too bad because the original Star Wars was all about being more grounded, right? Where it had the super, you know, chipped up star fighters and the used universe aesthetic, which was intended to make you feel like it was a real place. And so I had kind of planned, and also the Mandalorian felt like the, the height of cynicism to me. So. I mean, just in the sense that, like, Boba Fett and Jango Fett have always been pretty popular characters, so to make a TV show about them with, like, ugh, they have the personality of a brick. You can't imagine <laughs> actually watching a multi-part, ep- multi-episode series about them. But everybody loves The Mandalorian, apparently, so, okay. <laughs> is it about uh, Boba and Jango, or is it just about an no. unnamed Mandalorian? No, it's a, it's about The Mandalorian, is <laughs> from what it- I'm able to gather. It's not about Boba and Jango. Okay, so it's just the dude. And also Baby Yoda, apparently. Yeah, Baby Yoda, I've heard. Uh, I hear, like, Disney's, tr- like, breaking the legs, tripping over themselves, trying to make uh, merchandise for that in time for Christmas. I look forward to Baby Yoda being getting its own spinoff on Disney+. Plus. One of the funniest things I ever saw and heard in my entire life was I had just started a custodial job uh, that I used to work. And this was beside uh, an EB game slash GameStop. And... <laughs> One of the employees who actually was a friend of mine who I knew before I started working uh, close to him, he just kind of hauled in. I was right by the trash compactor, and he just kind of hauls in this overstock of Yoda, talking Yoda dolls. And he throws them all into the dumpster, right? And he presses the button as a compactor, and it starts crushing these Yodas, and they start screeching this, like, these, like, you know, one-liner Yoda, like, oh, this is terrible, it might be you know, just that Yoda, Yoda voice going on. And I never forgot it. That was pretty much the highlight of my job. Oh, my God. <laughs> that was pretty great. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, I could totally imagine that, too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was, I, I, I often, like, just got irritated by how much stuff was thrown out, but I have to say that was the one great sacrifice to a landfill I've ever seen. Yeah, I'm actually, I wish they had been donated or something, yeah, as opposed yeah. to being thrown away. <laughs> but the, the sound was remarkable. The mental image of them getting grown up. Oh, no. <laughs> it's very, and you do a good Yoda impression, I gotta say. My family's really good at mimicry for some stupid reason. <laughs> it comes in handy. All right. On that note, if you're enjoying the podcast, if you enjoy Nadia's Yoda impressions, can I recommend that you give us a review over on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever you can give reviews and, you know, give us a good review because we we like good reviews and we enjoy hearing from you and we like to know when people enjoy the podcast. Some people have been saying nice things on Twitter about the show, actually, Yes. which uh, thank you very much. We put a lot of work into producing this. So thank you. Speaking of Twitter, I'm a, at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. And US Gamer is at US Gamer Net. Follow us for all of the RPG stuff, I suppose. Also, we have a weekly newsletter that goes out every single Wednesday. Nadia, what's your topic this week? Uh, I think this week uh, I will be writing about uh, RPG you shouldn't overlook this year, 2019, and I will I will surprise you which which one it will be. Is it going to be Dragon Quest Builders too? 
Well, I already like, you know, preach about that. And I will say right here, <laughs> no, don't miss Dragon Quest Builders 2. But um, there are other like overlooked RPGs, I think, are probably worth checking out as well. Well, by the time this episode goes up, Thanksgiving will already be over. But when you send the uh, actual uh, newsletter out, it will be the day before Thanksgiving. So is there an RPG that you would recommend for the holiday weekend? Oh, uh, let's see. Of course, like, I'm playing Pokemon. No one's going to overlook Pokemon. Uh, but I don't know. I have to. I still have to, like, think on it because uh, I have to go through my Switch and say, okay, I didn't finish this. I didn't finish this. I re- finished this. I enjoyed it very much. Uh, I just started playing Tactic Ogre, actually, because I got it for $6 on my uh, Vita. Not but that's a, not... You need to play Witcher 3. I do. You're absolutely right. And... I actually will be starting that very soon, if not tonight. Well, I was looking through a lot of the games that came out on the Switch, and it really is the year of the RPG port, isn't it? It is, which is fine with me. And I think that even though it's a little bit expensive, maybe people should consider going and getting the the Mana Collection for Switch? Yeah, that's actually not a bad addition whatsoever. It's, uh... Again, Trials of Mana, this is the first time it's gotten a Western official release, a whole new localization translation. Um, and one thing actually Square is doing right now is they're pushing trailers for the 3D Trials of Mana quite hard. So if you want to get into that door before the 3D remake comes out, uh, by all means, it's still a great game in 2D. It looks gorgeous, one of the best looking games on the SNES. The original Secret Mana... Again, flawed, but really one of my favorite games ever. Even the original Final Fantasy Adventure holds up quite well. Uh, I have mentioned it before, but I stu- still really do wish that they had included the the kind of remake that they did for mobile and PSP a little while back. You know, not in place of the original, but just as an addition. I think it looks really pretty. Which, the uh, Secret of Mana? Or, uh, all of uh, them. They all look yeah. really pretty on the Switch screen, even the Game Boy game. Yeah, I was surprised how good the Game Boy game looks. Um, my only complaint, I don't think I like the border that much, but you can always turn those off, so big deal. Mm, yeah, I don't think I'm going to get around to it anytime soon, though, because I'm currently in the middle of Pokemon, and then after I finish Pokemon, well, I'm also probably going to be playing Disco Elysium concurrently with that. Yeah, I need to try and get that on my PC and get that done before uh, the year is out, because that's one I really don't want to miss. Yeah, and Katie and Mike are talking about it like it's going to be the runaway game of the year. That might be. Um, I do know that uh, Return of the Oberdin was one of those games that kind of got away from a lot of people last year, and I think putting it on the Switch gave it a whole whole new life. Yeah, that's the unfortunate thing is Disco Elysium isn't coming into console until next year at the earliest, right? Yeah, it's coming to consoles, but I don't know exactly when, and that does complicate things because I... It can probably run on my computer now that I think about it, but I just prefer playing stuff on my Switch when I can. Yeah, I mean, games can be popular on PC, but when push comes to shove so many times, they don't truly break out until they're available on a a mobile or on a a console or something like that. Because people just don't play games on their PC like in a mainstream mass market way, at least... Yeah, I feel very much the same way because a lot of people are like me in that they don't have gaming PCs and even a a game that doesn't take up much resources like Disco Elysium still kind of hesitate because it's like, well, wh- what if my computer can't handle it? Am I going to have to, you know, scale down all, everything until it runs like a potato? It's just I'd rather not bother. I'd rather be console trash and just buy what I need and start playing right away, not have to worry about settings or upgrades or anything like that. I know PC fans are crossing their arms right now. I'm not I'm not invalidating the PC by any stretch of the imagination. Oh no, no. If if you can play on the if you are a PC gamer, more respect to you because all that extra bother you guys go through just to play a game, I respect <laughs> that. You have hustle that I don't. I mean, games like Stardew Valley run just fine on all, yeah. most PCs. Yeah, um, but that's like a game I could look at and, and just identify right away, okay, that's not going to give me a problem because it's basically Final Fantasy VI on PC. Yeah, apparently I'm going to have to review Shovel Knight on my PC. <laughs> oh, yeah, you, uh, you're enlisted. Good luck with that. The new the King of Cards expansion. I wasn't even thinking about reviewing it, but apparently I've been uh, signed up. <laughs> <laughs> Was it Mike who signed you up? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I signed up when I forgot. <laughs> Sometimes, sometimes you sign yourself up and you forget, and sometimes your name just mysteriously appears. <laughs> All right, then. 
We're going to continue on to the next segment, which is with Sarah, and we're going to talk about the state of tabletop RPGs, so don't go away. Exoblogat is genuinely devoted toward all things RPGs. Occasionally tabletop games come up on the show, but as Nadia and I don't play particularly actively, we don't often have a chance to talk about them. But this is an opportunity because Dicebreaker just went live last week, and joining me is a staff writer from Dicebreaker. It's Sarah Elsom. Hello. Hiya, how's it going? I'm doing okay, thank you very much. And how is Dicebreaker going so far? Have you had any awesome tabletop-related adventures? <laughs> uh, well, we we tried out uh, as as a group a light RPG called Quest, which was sort of like a very very stripped back Dungeons and Dragons. So that's been quite exciting. Uh, but for the most part, we've just been sort of getting our heads down and getting ready for our big launch, uh, which we're very excited about. Yeah, as of the release of this podcast, it should be properly live i guess we'll see right um <laughs> yeah but in the meantime my understanding is that you are a big dungeons and dragons fan how did you get into dnd uh funny funny story actually um my my, my long time best friend has been a gigantic dungeons and dragons fan for a very long time uh, he he literally was taught in his bed as a child by his dad how to dm and the overall art of being a dungeon master um and I just kind of I, I began to become quite interested in it. This idea of sort of the role playing and the escapism, um, and I asked asked him to DM a session. Uh, I got a group together of uh, numerous misfit friends, uh, and that was two years ago. And we've been playing every week since. What's your class? Uh, so I'm a I play a bardlock, which is a multi class uh, for super cool people. <laughs> um, uh, it's a mixture of a bard, which is the traditional kind of a music-based character. Uh, you, you Like a lot of people will do it where like their musical instrument is their weapon. Uh, mine's more of just a kind of like snarky shouting kind of bard. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and a warlock is essentially someone that's made a dark pact with an unknowable entity. So the way that it sort of worked was that my bard went out into Barovia. We're playing Curse of Strahd, which is quite a dark campaign set in an evil sort of wilderness of nastiness and bleakness that's ruled over by an evil vampire lord um and my bard made a deal with an entity <laughs> that they met in barovia my bard's not very wise um so they became a bardlock which gives me a curious combination of bard and warlock powers um i've, I've played a lot of other characters and one-offs as well i generally quite like charisma based characters such as bards and warlocks uh but also you know it's super fun sometimes to play a big beefy boy and basically just hit things really hard so uh, i'm pretty open to playing all the classes really so you're an evil warlock oh sorry an evil bard i wouldn't say that i'm evil i kind of mostly i mean that's what a lot of evil people say right but uh i i mostly fit within i say kind of like chaotic neutral um the entity that i did make the deal with seemed evil at first but they're not necessarily evil it's a very kind of amoral world Dungeons and dragons or at least it can be but for the most part my bard doesn't isn't interested in hurting people or anything like that. They're just kind of a little bit focused on their own ends. <laughs> I'm just imagining a bardlock going, well, you know, he seemed evil at first, but we went down to the pub, had a couple pints, and everything was... <laughs> And we're just he's a good bloke. He's a good bloke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's just he's just really misunderstood, you know. I mean, yes, he is a horrifying entity made out of shadows that lurks in the darkness. But you know, <laughs> he just needs a chance. You just you just got to give everyone a chance. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, been a lot of fun. Uh, we do definitely have a couple of evil characters in our campaign, though. We we had someone uh, make a make a pact with another entity much further down the line that turned him into a death knight, and he is now literally undead, which is quite upsetting. <laughs> when we meet sort of NPCs and people that aren't our party and so we say are a little bit less accepting of uh, being with an undead warrior. Uh, so yes, there is certainly great potential to be evil in Dungeons & Dragons. Um, and I think there's something I would quite like to see in Dungeons & Dragons is maybe kind of like more evil-focused campaigns. It's, it's a trend that I really like in tabletop as well, you know, where you kind of play the bad guys. What's your take on 5th fifth ge- fifth edition in general? Um, would you say that it's... Uh, you're kind of like neutral positive on it or fully positive or maybe a little more down on it. 
Um, I'm a really huge fan of fifth edition. In fact, I'd say that I'm probably a fifth edition purist. Um, like I've not had experiences of playing first edition D&D, but I have written about first edition D&D a lot and spoken to a lot of people like kind of within the space about it. Uh, and the general gist <laughs> that I get from it is that first edition is essentially the DM uh, or dungeon master versus the players. Uh, so we're trying to see, you know, like first editions where like things like the infamous Tomb of Horrors come from, you know, so to give you an example, Tomb of Horrors is a dungeon where you can die in three different ways before you even enter the dungeon. Uh, it's got all the, all, all the kind of like D&D tropes of like the giant boulders that come out of nowhere and I know like walls bleeding blood, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I think that like, generally around third or fourth edition things get a little bit crunchier especially sort of 3.5 where it's a little bit like more mechanical whereas fifth edition so far at least in in my opinion um is the most story and exploration focused of all the dungeon and dragons editions uh there's really an emphasis on role playing and exploration and kind of like storytelling as well like understanding the world um and that's a huge part of why i play dungeon dragons i do enjoy the grind i enjoy fighting i enjoy the mechanics of it but ultimately i'm there to role play i wish i had a better word of this or like zany character and basically just i guess in, enjoy a collaborative storytelling experience so it's kind of a 180 from where D was when i was playing it which was kind of fourth edition mm-hmm. i remember when i was playing fourth mm-hmm. edition everybody was complaining that it would had been streamlined too much from 3.5 <laughs> and now it seems as if but everybody but generally speaking D seemed very heavily focused on encounters and encounter design mm-hmm. at that time and now it sounds like fifth edition is much more i mean kind of getting closer into the vampire the masquerade space the white wolf space where you're supposed to be uh, role-playing a lot more uh, certainly, I, th- I think so. I'd, I'd, I'd be very curious to hear about your, your fourth edition adventures <laughs> as well, <laughs> and uh, kind of what, what your uh, what your opinions there are, are of fourth. Um, but yeah, I would I would say that like fifth edition, especially, and you can really see that in the variety of campaigns available for fifth edition as well. You know, you can go everywhere from sort of like you know the cursed vampire land to jungles out in the forest to sort of you know the, more of the traditional kind of like slightly seedier kind of like fantasy setups. Um, and also, like, from a Dungeon Master perspective, you know, you get these campaign books and you read through them and there's so much sort of detail about the storytelling, about making the environment real, about kind of just adding in all those little details that make the make the whole experience a little bit more immersive and a little bit more narrative focused. Are you more of a, a player or do you actually run a lot of your own campaigns? Uh, I like to wear both hats, both very cursed hats. Um, I I like to, I absolutely love playing. I play twice a week um, and I'm always kind of looking for other opportunities to play and sort of one-offs, which are like very small scenarios like that last maybe a few hours or in our case, usually around seven to eight hours. Um, And I also absolutely love DMing. I've been DMing a campaign that I wrote myself for a little while. It's a little bit kind of like He-Man meets Spinal Tap, (laughs) basically an (laughs) incompetent. It's uh, it's called the Beholders, which is the name of the rock band, and uh, it's about a it's about a really incompetent rock band that is just trapped out in the Feywilds, which are basically like sort of this incredibly psychedelic, beautiful, but absolutely just so dangerous uh, location based out in a in in the sort of D and D world. Uh, so I really enjoy both. I'd have to say, like playing is definitely a lot more intensive than running a game, uh, but there is a, a, a real satisfaction to be had in kind of creating almost like this sandbox for your friends and like family to kind of play within, and then just seeing what they do with it. Even if like nine times out of ten they will just derail your campaign entirely, um, but it's still just very fun to see people playing around in this world that you've kind of created, and also again that collaborative element, seeing what people bring to it. Like I always say, the best moments that I've kind of ever had when being a dungeon master have been those collaborative moments where like the players think up something a little bit wild to do and I kind of improvise around that and you're just like wow we created this thing and it's a, it was a lot of fun you know really memorable as corny as it sounds the one time I tried to run a tabletop campaign was Star Wars and ah. it, it it was an experience because I didn't really understand like how to lay out the actual encounters and that kind of thing and I had an idea of a story that I wanted to tell and whatnot, but you know how players are, <laughs> and they're just gonna <laughs> just kind of kind of go and do whatever the heck they want. And so, what I ended up finding result was that they were just killing stormtroopers by the dozens, even the hundreds, and there was absolutely nothing that I could do about <laughs> it. 
Yeah, you, you learn that like very quickly that all players are inherently just murderous maniacs. <laughs> <laughs> like you give you give people the keys to an imaginary kingdom. They're like, you know what? I just want to kill things or break things or occasionally climb onto things and brood. <laughs> Other general like player themes I've noticed. So what 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 kind of setup were you going for in your Star Wars campaign? Oh man, it was so long ago. So the general setup was that we were all in a star base, right? Kind of like Cloud City with the mining and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the Empire had come around and they were threatening it sort of like, uh, you know, with Lando and everything, right? Well, yeah, that the empire. person who was ostensibly running Cloud City decided to just sell to the Empire. It's like, sure, yeah, here you go. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> You're like, here is this huge moral decision you must make. And they're like, yeah, okay, <laughs> whatever. So the DM was like going, was actually kind of a, like put out because he had built the campaign around the notion of resisting the empire. But the person uh, who had done that was like, no, no, like the person I'm role playing is a total merchant, like a total merc. They're, they're just going to sell that that thing to the empire. They don't care. <laughs> <laughs> so it was sort of like role playing the joys of being a corporate stooge, effectively. <laughs> just, just like. So I was like, uh, okay, sure. Uh, so he was like, okay, well, I don't want to uh, to run this campaign anymore. <laughs> and I was like, uh, I don't. I'll take a crack. I guess we're all in a spaceship flying around now. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't remember the exact crux of what I was trying to do with this actual campaign. I just know that. We ended up on a planet and there were many, many stormtroopers being uh, shot and or dismembered with the force. So it was a lot of fun. <laughs> that, that, that does sound like a lot of fun. And like, what kind of differences did you notice? I've, I've never played the Star Wars RPG, um, but would, would you say that like there are similarities between it and Judge of the Dragons or is it just like a whole different kind of ballpark? I want to say that we were using GURPS and then we were just creating a Star Wars RPG out of that. So I'm curious... Uh, there's some, been some interesting trends in the tabletop space of late. One of them, I, I've seen some people talking about the notion that streaming and YouTube have done a huge part in reviving D&D and kind of sending it into a new renaissance. What's your take on that? Oh, yes. I mean, absolutely. I mean, just straight off the cuff, the the impact that uh, sort of streams like Critical Role um, have had is is just so huge. Like uh, there's, you know, even people within my own kind of Dungeons and Dragons groups who got into D&D effectively based off of uh, watching folks like Matt Mercer uh, D- DM and kind of seeing like where you could take that. Um, and then, you know, that that's kind of like the really big one where you've got the voice actors that play through the characters, but then just even on kind of like a mid to smaller scale, like there are so many people that are doing interesting D uh streaming and i also think that it's something that like wizards of the coast uh the, the people that make Dungeons and dragons have really sort of like they understand how how that's working and so they've produced a lot of their own content in that vein you know with a lot of their designers for example running streams um so i think that because youtube is so prevalent and because video content is so prevalent uh and and dungeon of dragons particularly i think really and, and rpgs overall like do very because they can be very performative i think really do suit the medium quite well and then, of course, you know, that the medium is so gigantic that you're then just bringing these stories to, you know, millions upon millions of people. Um, and I think that that's great because for a really long period of time, I feel that RPGs felt quite like unapproachable, if you know what I mean. Uh, a, a little bit kind of like Kabali, like, you know, you could only really get into one if like your friend happened to be a dungeon master or, you know, you you you'd kind of come across it across it through quite random means. Whereas now with the prevalence of, of Dungeons and Dragons and so on on YouTube, um, it feels that RPGs overall have become more accessible. And obviously the side effect of that is that more people play them, which is awesome. Yeah, and it kind of, in that context, it makes sense for D&D to go more toward a role-playing uh, kind of system because, I mean, so many of these streams are, I mean, sort of improv, right? People getting People who are very talented getting a chance to really show off their ability to kind of mess around and create a character on the fly and tell these stories on the fly. 
Yeah, absolutely. And um, certainly like lots of people that are very talented performers as well, who can really sort of put in those dramatic elements, uh, p- p- performing very vividly um, and kind of just, you know, really quick fire imp- improvisation, kind of like you were saying. So, yeah, I think that that has, has definitely, I, I think as well as making it more approachable, I think it's also made it more appealing. Uh, you know, it's it sort of, I, I think that D&D and sort of similar RPGs are, I, I feel it feels like they're shedding that mantle of yesteryear where, it, where you know, the, these games were really just the respite of like, I don't know, basement dwellers who liked who liked holding, you know, 30, 30 packs of dice that they would just roll while staring into space or whatever, talking about kind of <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, I guess I'm technically one of those people, so I can't really criticize, but you know what I mean? Like, it's kind of like, it's almost like Dungeons and Dragons has become like trendier. It, it's become like the kind of thing that like your more kind of like extroverted nerd would do rather than like the thing that really is just for very, very lonely people that enjoy looking at stat tables, you know, it's uh, it's been repackaged, I feel. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot more interesting to watch very talented people pretending to be, uh, you know, a, a dwarf or whatever versus a bunch of nerds sitting around a table kind of quietly drinking beer and going, all right, um, I want to check this wall. Okay, roll. Uh, I got a, a three. Okay, you don't find anything. Okay, check check this wall then. Okay, roll it. <laughs> Go for it. And then someone's like, well, um, I think you may have found that you forgot to put your proficiency modifier on that uh, perception stat there. So um, if we could just do that all again, <laughs> like that, that kind of thing, right? <laughs> So what's your take on Baldur's Gate 3? Because I've also seen uh, quite a bit of excitement around that. Certainly, there's excitement in the video game RPG community Mm -hmm. where people, I mean, have obviously have fond memories of Baldur's Gate 1 and 2. Uh, Baldur's Gate 2 is on our top 25 RPGs of all time. Mm -hmm. Uh, People are really big on Larian Studios, who did Divinity Original Sin 2. Mm -hmm. And now they're picking up the mantle of this really kind of beloved... RPG series, but more to the point, they're doing it in lockstep with Wizards of the Coast, who, as far as I can tell, are also producing a new tabletop module to kind of go along with it. So it seems like a a big moment for Dungeons and Dragons in general. Wow, and it, it really feels like a, a real kind of like definitive RPG moment as well, doesn't it? Because Baldur's Gate, I know, is, is so influential, like one and two. You know, they, they, it kind of comes from that tradition of things like Neverwinter. Was it was Neverwinter a Baldur's Gate game? I kind of, I, I get my like old school RPGs confused sometimes. Um, I'm, I believe they are, I mean, they were kind of the same Infinity Engine type uh, thing. But generally speaking, there are different types of, you know, Different settings, as it were. Oh, yeah, because Neverwinter's Forgotten Realms, isn't it? Which is where quite a lot of D&D stuff comes in, whereas Boulder, Boulder's Gate is like very much its own thing. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, just uh, to, to start again. Um, so it, it feels like a very like it feels like a very definitive moment for RPGs in terms of you've got these legendary kind of video games like Baldur's Gate 1 and 2 and Baldur's Gate very much comes from the tradition of things like Neverwinter Nights and then sort of like later on down the line Oblivion and then Skyrim. Um, and then also you've got Dungeons and Dragons, which all these kind of like video games have been steeped in for for decades and decades. So for all of them to kind of come together and be like, I don't know, it just feels like you know this is RPGs. Like you know, it's it, it's very, yeah, it, it feels quite dramatic. It feels big, and I think that there are many people who are fans of both Dungeons and Dragons and Baldur's Gate. So there's like a lot of cross, you know, and you can see that from recently having uh, the descent into Avernus setting for Dungeons and Dragons, uh, which is based in the Baldur's Gate universe. Um, and from what I understand, there was a lot of cross appeal for that too, where, you know, people who enjoy Baldur's Gate, like, enjoy this, the similar kind of themes that you can get in the kind of low fantasy of Dungeons and Dragons. Are you a big video game RPG fan, or do you focus more on the tabletop side? Uh, so I used to be, uh, I started, I started out writing in games, um, and what was a games journalist for a couple of, a couple of years prior to moving in, in into Dicebreaker. Um, and I would say that, Video game RPGs were something that I enjoyed hugely, um, kind of like as a teenager and kind of young adult. Uh, but the more into games I got, the more kind of interested I became in strange kind of independent narrative-based games. Uh, kind of, I 
I, I didn't, as games kind of became like bigger and kind of even more grindy, I, I found myself kind of losing interest and veering more toward, I'd say like social based kind of things. And that's one of the main things that I really like about Dungeons and Dragons and board games um, is that they are very like sort of real social experiences. And, you know, it also gives you being excuse. You're like, hey, I'm playing video games, but also look, I'm having social contact. I'm a person, a real person. But, you know, there's also, a, there's so many I, I, don't, I kind of moved over to board games having felt that although video games still have so much to offer in so many ways, board games just felt like a little bit more of an unexplored space where quite a lot more kind of new things were happening, especially within the RPG space. I mean, there's certainly a collaborative, there can be a very collaborative aspect to a good video game role playing, but so many of the best ones are by definition, solitary. You're playing with your your digital imaginary friends, yeah. as it were. So yeah. it, I suppose it makes sense to get together with friends over some drinks and then to actually run a tabletop campaign and be like, I am interacting with people. This is a social occasion. <laughs> yes, it, it's most comforting. Um, but also, <laughs> um, but also, like, I think one of the things that, like, the more Dungeons and Dragons I play, um, the more I kind of enjoy how it is kind of, you know, it's the theater of the mind and it's all about, it's all about imagination. And basically you can just do absolutely anything, you know, whether that is just murdering all of the stormtroopers or, you know, turning a giant, a giant dragon into a tiny hamster. Like, and so I find that kind of, as I play video games on top of the RPGs, I've kind of, I get to get video games. I'm like, ah, but I kind of want to do this thing, but all I can do is like kill this thing and talk to this dude over here. Like, um, if it, they 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 start to feel kind of more stripped back and mechanical, just because Dungeons and Dragons, you know, even though it, it just requires, you know, basically just dice and people and bits of paper, you're gonna need lots of bits of paper. <laughs> um, it it just it show it has so much more scope for storytelling in a way that I I think that games sometimes don't. That said, though, like I mean, video game RPGs completely defined my gaming experience. When I was a teenager, I got Final Fantasy VII was the first game that I played and was like, wow, this is this is something else, you know. Um, it really, it was the first time that I thought, hey, like story can actually be a part of games, you know, because back then I think most of the games I played were things like wrestling games, you know, like uh, real kind of button bashers with those wonderful PS1 graphics. <laughs> so seeing something like Final Fantasy, which is like, hey, welcome to this ama- amazing other world where there's so many things happening and there's characters. And, you know, you look back on it now and it's like so many aspects of it seem like outdated. But at the time, it was just a real shock to me. You know, it was a real like defining moment, just realizing that a game could take you to a similar place that a film or a book could, you know? Well, what I think is interesting, though, is that uh, so many of the greatest RPGs come from the D&D universe and some of them have some of the best stories ever told in games, right? I mean, like Planescape Torment and that kind of thing. Um, Really, I mean, they're very dense mechanically, but they also really embody the notion of being able to role play with your computer characters and have exchanges with them. And then also being able to have a wide variety of choices at your disposal as you explore this world. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it's like um, sort of thinking about RPGs, uh, like the you know the the old Bioware games, like the first Dragon Age, um, which was like a lot of fun because it really was set in this kind of low fantasy world where everyone's dying and everything's really corrupt and there's kind of these unknowable horrors bursting out from the ground. Um, and that that game had an element of choice, and like while the decisions sort of like compared to games now seem like perhaps a little bit binary, there was still just something so amazing about being able to shape this world, you know, with with your decisions and things that you do having an impact. Um, and the storyline, you know, absolutely great for Dragon Age One. Really enjoyed it. The the big one recently is Disco Elysium, which is another one that's like super role play heavy focused. Um, Oh yes, yeah. This looks absolutely fascinating because it uses um. It sort of obviously you don't roll dice, but it kind of uses a system similar to dice, doesn't it? Where you've kind of got to do a check based mm-hmm. on what you want to do, right? Yeah, that that looks amazing, and um, I I've not got around to playing it yet, but it it's one on my very much on my to do list um as a as a game to play. Um, it, it's interesting as well how it deals with um, isn't it like the character kind of has like not so much multiple personalities, but basically things that you do feed into yes. their traits long term. Uh, so my understanding of Disco Elysium is essentially um, as you have conversations with characters and make decisions that effectively builds your character on the fly and informs oh. how people see you. 
And you may mm-hmm. find that the way you're responding to different situations and different people uh, and can result in a character that maybe you're like, maybe it tells you something about yourself and your own opinions. <laughs> <laughs> Our reviewer, Mike Williams, played Disco Leeds. Disco Elysium, and then our senior editor, Katie McCarthy, also played it. They were both on the show uh, to talk about it. It's on my backlog, which I wrote about earlier this week, where I was just like, I got this list of games that I should be playing. (laughs) Disco Elysium is definitely one of them, because (laughs) a lot of people are like, yep, this is the best RPG of the year. This is the one. The one that you gotta play. So, I strongly recommend that you check it out. So, Sarah, if people wanted to get into tabletop gaming, how would you recommend they do that? Uh, well, obviously, uh, t- t- uh, check out Dicebreaker, where we have all the uh, hot hashtag content <laughs> that you will be requiring for your uh, your tabletop gaming needs. Um, but I, I would say probably like, I mean, it, that's the thing as well. You say like tabletop games, it's very much the same as saying just kind of like, ah, video games, you know, because there are so many sub, you know, sub genres within that, you know, because you might you might really enjoy games like Magic the Gathering, for example, like which are sort of more like competitive strategic card games um, or you might be more sort of into, uh, you know, the, the world of cooperative RPGs, or I, I'm, I've, I've not seen very many of them, but also like more competitive RPGs like Paranoia, um, you know, and, and the same people that enjoy playing in a fantasy kingdom might not might might not enjoy playing in, say, Cyberpunk, uh, which is another another RPG that sort of has quite is, is has recently kind of gotten the video game treatment. Um, so I'd say that like if you were looking to start within tabletop games, like kind of work out what you're interested in, maybe uh, if board games is your way check out a local board game cafe they're they're all kind of like popping up like wildfire at the moment uh obviously like you know board gaming is is becoming quite popular i think um and in terms of dungeon and dragons um there are adventurers leagues uh and also roll 20 i found is is a really fantastic resource for finding people to play uh, dungeon and dragons with because you can literally just respond to adverts on there or you can like write up your own looking for players. And it's got so many, like Roll20 as an app now has so many integrations, you know, ranging from like, you know, Spotify bits that let you play music, um, sort of kind of like doing it through the cam that I found that Roll20 is uh, like surprisingly like, you know, obviously nothing really beats actually being there with your friends playing the game. Um, but you know what? It comes in pretty close, I think. So I'd say like to people looking to get into games, just, you know, just look further into things that you're drawn to. Um, and then see where you can kind of find places to play games, whether that's online, because uh, also as well on, on the on the video game front, there's Tabletop Simulator, which allows you to play lots and lots of board games at a significantly cheaper price uh, than you would if you were say buying them. Because I think that I think that costs can be like a bit of a barrier as well with board games, um, you know, especially when you're looking at kind of like heavy hitters like Gloomhaven that kind of like coming into like near a hundred quid. Um, so yeah, basically just look into what you're interested in and see where you can play, whether that is online or whether that's in your local cafe or whether that's uh, you do kind of what I did and go, hey, I want to play games. Who wants to come around my house? And you uh, and you send out Facebook messages, you know, it's uh, I think it, it, it's all about just kind of having the, having the having the faith and the kind of willingness to just check out the unknown a little bit there. And to that, I would add that I think a common trap is to feel like you have to play this full blown Uh, campaign and you always hear about people who've been running campaigns for years and all Mm -hmm. of that perhaps find a one-shot adventure on online Mm -hmm. and one that has pre-generated characters and everything and just run that adventure and you will find that i mean it will only take a day Mm -hmm. it can be like relatively low impact you will have an easier time perhaps getting into the character and starting to understand the different archetypes and everything Mm -hmm. And that can be your first real taste of what a great tabletop RPG can be, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are so many fantastic pre-written Dungeons & Dragons campaigns, but also, like, Dungeons & Dragons might not be, like, the correct system if, like, you know, you're looking to get into, if you're kind of getting into games and you're looking for something a little bit lighter. um, There's so many, like, fascinating sort of RPG systems out there to try out that are a lot simpler. Um, I'm a really big fan of Grant Howard's infamous one-page RPGs, which literally have 
everything that you need on them on a singular page. Um, and they're often like things that are quite silly. So, you know, Goblin Quest, for example, where you are incompetent goblins that just die continuously all the time. Um, but, you know, often get like it, it only requires six sided dice, which is like your standard dice. You don't even literally all, all you need is like the book, um, some dice and you're kind of good to go, you know, because you don't you don't need to worry too much about the kind of stat crunching. Like I found that Dungeons and Dragons can for some people quite initially be a bit like, whoa, this is a lot. You know, this is a lot of paperwork. I thought this was fun um, and it's completely worth it. Like I would I would totally like implore anyone who is interested in Dungeons and Dragons to take a look because chances are if you're feeling the kind of D&D pool, like D&D is for you um, for sure. But there's also just a host of other brilliant role playing games that are a lot easier to get into. Um, and that are also just sort of shorter setup. I mean, for example, Fiasco, which I wouldn't say so much like is necessarily an RPG in the vein of uh, in the vein of things like Dungeons and Dragons, but literally Fiasco doesn't even require a dungeon master. So all of you can get involved. And again, with that, you just read the book, you get a chance to perform. And like you were saying, you know, about the kind of pre-made, just getting into the mindset of being another par- a character. Um, and learning it, and it's like, I think one of the fir- one of the first tabletop games I ever played was called Johnny's Voices, and it's literally a ta- it's a pen and paper game where one of you plays Johnny and the rest of you play the voices that want to torment him, <laughs> and you each have a goal which is to get Johnny to do a thing, and you've got to kind of like sort of I guess just poke and prod him enough to get to get Johnny to do the thing. Um, and that was just a very, very easy game with extremely loose rules. Uh, but, you know, it, it showed me kind of like some of the real basics of, of a role-playing game. Um, so, yeah, I think definitely just get straight in there. And, yep, I definitely recommend one-off one-off campaigns, whether that's one that you write or whether that's one of the, like, excellent little uh, starter ones that you can get in, say, like the D&D starter set. Um, or looking at uh, smaller, smaller, lighter RPGs, things like Mouse Guard, The Warren, Goblin Quest. Uh, things that require a little bit less less kind of investment as a player um, to kind of give you give you a taste of what to expect. All right, and where can we find you? Well, I live in Dicebreaker now. <laughs> Dicebreaker is who I am and where I live. Uh, so yeah, um, basically the the site uh, is launching very very soon. Um, it might be launched by the time this comes out. Uh, but for the mo- for the moment, uh, we have a very active video channel, which has been uh, run by uh, the lovely Johnny Chiodini and Wheels, uh, and also uh, Alex Lollies recently as well, starting up on there. Um, so they've been playing through a lot of games. They've also been doing a lot of role-playing stuff. Um, you know, for example, there's a playthrough of a game called Dread, which is a really interesting uh, tabletop RPG, because instead of using dice, you just have a giant Jenga tower. <laughs> and every time you want to do something, you just sort of precariously try and pull a block from the Jenga tower. Um so yeah, in terms of finding me, um, I'm all, I'm I'm in Dicebreaker. <laughs> that's that's where I am. All right, thank you so much, Sarah, and thanks for coming on the show. And we'll have to have you back every time next time we have something big to talk about with tabletop RPGs. Ah, oh, fantastic! I'd lo- I'd love to talk to you again, Kat. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs> All right. Thank you to Sarah for coming on the show to talk about Dungeons and Dragons and all of those other games with the unexpected dollop of Disco Elysium. All right. Let's talk about uh, some mail, Nadia, that came in. But here's the thing. Mm -hmm. Um, We've had somebody, um, they are on Twitter. Their name is Alin. And they have been standing pretty hard for a game called Mistover, and they want us, they want our opinion on it mm-hmm. on the podcast. They want to see if the Blood God is willing to give it its blessing. So here's the deal with Mistover it's basically Darkest Dungeon, but it's a Korean RPG. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that uh, does narrow it down a bit. Um, I did look at the, the trailer for the game, and it, it looks lovely. Um, I just love how, yes, it is very much that Darkest Dungeon look, but it has a more of an anime bent to it. But I have never been one for permadeath games, especially cruel permadeath like Darkest Dungeon. From what I understand, it's just a little bit too permadeathy for me. Yeah, we were talking about systems-based games versus role-playing games, mm-hmm. dungeon crawlers versus narrative. I mean, this game would be maybe the exact opposite of something like Disco Elysium, for example, which is much more of a dialogue-driven game. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's what uh, that's the impression I got. Just uh, looking at other people's reviews, saying like 
it is a very decent systems-based game, but if you're in it for a story, you're, you're not going to get much of one. The thing that I found interesting was looking through the Steam reviews and whatnot, it seemed as if there were a lot of people who were attracted by kind of the anime aesthetic, but came away frustrated because it was basically Darkest Dungeon, but a roguelike. Right, right, yeah. Um, that's why you look up reviews, people. <laughs> I'm just saying. They're like, oh, it doesn't really have a story, and like, what's going on with these copy-paste dungeons, and it's like really systems-based. I'm like, I, I think that's the point. <laughs> yeah, and to be fair, I am someone who can appreciate a systems-based game. Like, I loved Slay the Spire. I really enjoyed that, and that's pretty systems-based uh, and very lacking in much of a story. Which, by the way, apparently that's up for no- nominations. Uh, apparently it came out this year as, like, it went into full release, Slay the Spire. And I was like, oh, it went into full release this year. Okay. And there's a game that it came out on console, and I'm like, heck yeah. Like, I'm I'm perfectly ready to uh, stand for this game. Yeah, I seem to remember that, like, when it came out for PC, it was definitely making some waves, but um, then it just faded away for a while. And then when it came out on Switch, it just got a huge push. It's not like Dead Cells or Hollow Knight in that it's, like, super tactical and from a production value standpoint, it's actually quite simple, so it's never going to get the amount of kind of airtime as those games, but it is a really, really darn good uh, card-based RPG. But uh, I I digress. So, yeah, Mistover. Um, When you look at it, the first thing you think is, wow, they really lifted the kind of the look of Darkest Dungeon in many ways, like the overall aesthetic even the way that it'll kind of zoom in and do the really static animation of the way that uh, the characters attack, uh, the character classes and everything. Um, but there are like plenty of crucial dif- differences. Uh, for one thing, it's kind of more of a isometric RPG, I want to say, than it is uh, than Darkest Dungeon, which is horizontal. Um, and it seems like the parties are much larger and positioning is a little bit different in darkest dungeon you have a line of four characters and you can kind of move them around whereas in this game uh depending on where you position them like all over the map is what Mm. matters as opposed to formations so right so that does make quite a difference in gameplay yeah um there's a fair amount of grinding and that kind of thing and, I mean, it's quite hard, <laughs> as yeah. usual. That was another thing that people were complaining about, is they don't like it, games being hard. Uh, I understand how frustrating that can be, honestly. But sometimes, uh, we have talked about accessibility very much on this show. Uh, but sometimes I just shy away from games that I just know are going to be are going to frustrate me more than I'm going to enjoy them. And uh, not much I can do about that. Yeah, there was an actual an article on uh, from M2, an interview that we posted uh, last week as of the release of this episode, in which uh, they were talking about bringing back a classic shoot 'em up, 8 bit shoot 'em up called Lest. And they were like, you know, yeah, we, we believe in easier difficulty modes because there are people who, when they find out a game is really hard, feel kind of like shame mm. about mm. Uh, not being able to finish a game and so they won't try. And so uh, it's better to kind of work them up until where they get on board with easier difficulty levels and then they work up to harder difficulty levels as opposed to just kind of crushing them. Yeah, I can appreciate that. Um, I know some people w- would rather die than, than go to an e- the, than play an easier version of a game, but uh, I'm not like that. There are very many there are very much instances where I start easy and move on to harder when I'm ready to just kind of take that plunge and yeah, it, it makes the whole experience very much enjoyable. So after describing the game, Alin says, uh, the game initially caught my interest for being Korean-developed, KRPGs being rare for international release, and often possessing of novel genre flavors heavily inspired by classic games. Shout out to fellow Ragnarok online veteran, Nadia. <laughs> yes, definitely. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate where you're coming from. Mistover art director, Taco Ashin has spent years in mobile game development perfecting the vanillaware house style of paper doll in illustration and animation, and her style really shines through in Mistover's character art. I love the Mignola-flavored ink-black American comic book look paired with Dojin-style character design. 
Japanese fan work being a large inspiration, according to Ashin. It is a welcome contrast to having the bleak apocalyptic tone and occasionally punishing permadeath mechanics tempered with endearing chibi designs without the weird lechy stuff that oftentimes accompanies this style. I feel the game has been somewhat unfairly maligned in certain press reviews, which took issue with genre staple mechanics the game exhibits, even though the developers have been extremely involved in addressing community criticism, adding an interface and mechanical affordances, as well as tweaking balance to permit a gentler experience for those so inclined. <clears throat> the way the game's titular apocalyptic storm hangs visibly over the town horizon and the clock of doom that ominously ticks down based on per-run performance provide an atmosphere of urgency that similar works often lack. Where Darkest Dungeon and Kin often have a looming permanent lose state, they really are felt as much as in Mistover. Coming up with satisfying party synergy among recruitable characters is rewarding, as is learning to use per-class dungeon navigation skills to clear dungeons expediently. The only letdown for me has been the music, where Korean RPGs often feature standout soundtracks, Mistover themes are few, unmemorable, and at worst, repetitive. Okay, well, that's a pretty interesting context right there for in terms of the actual look. Mm-hmm. Um, it so resembles Darkest Dungeon that it's easy to kind of lose the nuances of the art, if you know what I mean. Yeah, definitely. Like I said earlier, I did notice, yes, it does resemble Darkest Dungeons, but it still has its own bent to it, its own flavor. So, yes, this game has received, I would say, fairly mediocre reviews. It's mixed to negative over on Steam. But I will say that when I took a look at it for the first time, I was kind of struck by, well, I mean, (laughs) I'm a shallow person, and often if the art style doesn't grab me immediately i'm like i don't know right like you have (laughs) to kind of convince me after that well uh, this one ticks the first box i like the art style quite a bit and yeah that's the first point of entry yeah and then the fact that it looks like a pretty hardcore systems-based dungeon crawler in vein of darkest dungeon i'm like yes yes okay i'm listening class-based i get to pick a pick my combination of characters this all sounds great perfect (laughs) Yeah, uh, honestly, it really does sound like it's up your alley. Uh, you should really give it a try and see, come back to it, see how you uh, feel. Uh, here's the thing. I, I want them to put it on a mobile. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's only PC for now, right? Yeah, so it's on Steam, and I could go get it right now, but it's just one of those games that I kind of just want on my phone to noodle away, noodle away on. Uh, it's not mm-hmm. like Fire Emblem Heroes, a game that I'm still playing. Right, yeah, or like uh, I played Puzzles and Dragons on my phone all the time. It was funny that Diablo 2 designer David Brevik followed me on Twitter out of, kind of out of nowhere, and the first thing he did was tweet at me about whether or not Fire Emblem Heroes was good. <laughs> I love that he went to you for that uh, opinion. Like, you could look up a million reviews and, and blogs and stuff. He went to you. That uh, that says a lot for you, I suppose. He seems to have a lot of times on his hands lately uh, because he just started making It Lurks Below on totally on his own for fun. <laughs> Wow. And that became kind of its own little thing. And it went into full release, I think, last year. And he never intended it to be a big project. He's just kind of being a hobbyist right now, somebody who just really enjoys RPGs and enjoys designing RPGs and is just kind of uh, uh, seemingly in semi-retirement. Oh, good for him. He had to just kind of spend all that time uh, making what you like and playing Fire Emblem. It's a pretty good life. All right, and Sammy J Nine says, "Cat, you should definitely finish Persona Five over the break because it's looking like P Five Royal is going to be coming out right in a giant cluster of games in the spring. So it's going to be a really busy time. It's true. I'm going to be playing Final Fantasy VII Remake. We're going to have Cyberpunk. It's going to be a crazy busy time. Is it coming out in like? Uh, do they have like a, a firm release date for the translation of that? I thought it was coming out in March. Oh man, if it is, I'm screwed because yeah, I'm the same way. I'm going to be playing Final Fantasy Remake at the very least." And, uh, well, you know what, we actually, there is supposed to be an announcement on December 3rd about the, uh, Royal, so, uh, we'll see what that's about. Yeah, well, hopefully it just means that it's not coming out when it does. <laughs> or even better, put it on a Switch. <laughs> Hell yeah, like, uh, hey, everyone, we're coming to Switch after all, that'll make me go yay, and the second most likely thing to make me go yay is, yeah, we're, we're delaying this until, like, April. <laughs> I, I don't think it's going to come out on Switch ever. <laughs> 
Probably not. Um, my best guess is Sony has something going on in terms of exclusivity. Yeah, that's kind of what it seems like at this point, right? I yeah. mean, you would think that Persona 3 and 4 would have already made it to other consoles, but it just hasn't happened. Yeah, that's exactly it, because um, there, I was thinking, okay, well, maybe Persona 5, the graphically can't really thrive on the Switch, which isn't, which isn't true, but let's just say, like, for, for funsies, that's the case. Uh, Persona 3 and 4 could definitely be done on the Switch, no problem. Yeah, I mean, you the Switch has been out on has been on the market for almost three years at this point, and crazy, yeah, which is crazy to think about. And you would have th- thought that with its success in Japan and uh, the breakout success of Persona Five, that Atlas would be tripping over itself to get this thing on the Switch. So there must be something holding them back. I want to know what was going on with Shin Megami. It's supposed to be coming out to the switch they announced that on the day of the switch's reveal <laughs> i know i guess it's just having some troubles um yeah rpgs sometimes take a while to make that's true um that and they're supposed to be seeing an etrian odyssey successor at some point but hopefully uh, we see that sooner than later yeah well we'll see what's going to happen with that series now that it's not going to have the clamshell design with the dual screens yeah i am genuinely curious all right. Axel Blood God is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Thanks for Sarah for coming on the show to talk about tabletop RPGs. And of course, thanks to Nadia. And thank you to you, our loyal listener who listens to us each and every week. Uh, we're going to be on vacation, but I mean, our vacation will be done by the time this podcast comes out. So hooray. <laughs> Yay. We're back. It was great. And then it'll be December, and it'll be time for Game of the Year stuff. And Uh then it'll be 2020, and we're going to release our top 100 games of the decade list, because unlike other sites, we actually wait until the actual frickin' decade is over. Ooh, spicy. That's a spicy meatball. (laughs) I don't know why I did that. (laughs) All right. (laughs) You can find us on me on Twitter at the underscore capot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford, and of course, you can follow US Gamer at US Gamer Net. We'll be back at the same time as always next week. But until then, for Nadia and myself, thanks for listening and happy adventuring. <laughs> <laughs>